As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello, you. Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm Nurse Mo, and I'm so happy that you're studying with me today. This is episode 212, and today we're going to be talking about meconium aspiration syndrome. So maybe this is your first time here or you've just started listening recently. I'd love to ask you for a huge favor. Please go to whatever podcast player you are using and follow or subscribe to the podcast. That way I know that whenever I release the episode bright and early on Thursday mornings, it's showing up for you automatically. You will never miss a thing. And when I do release bonus episodes, you're sure to get those as well. So before I dive into this episode, I do want to take a moment for a shout out to one of my San fam. That's what I call you guys, my straight A nursing family. And this one goes out to Whitney. And Whitney is talking specifically about our planners because the new version is going on, is on sale right now. So the July version is available for sale. So Whitney says, this is my second straight A nursing planner and I am in love with them. This planner has been the only way I could stay organized through school and I love that the new version added cheat sheets at the back. So thank you, Whitney, for taking the time to share that feedback about the planners. And yes, I love the cheat sheets too. Wish I'd had that when I was a student. So a lot of the times, you guys, the things I make for you are things I wished I'd had. So the planners is definitely one of those. So if you are interested in getting your hands on the newest version of the Straight A Nursing Planner, I will include the link to that in the episode notes. So we're talking about meconium aspiration syndrome today, and you may see it referred to as MAS, the uh, acronym MAS, and this syndrome occurs when the infant breathes in or aspirates meconium either before, during, or even after they've been born. So meconium is the first fecal material produced by the infant. And when it is passed before birth, it can mix with the amniotic fluid in the womb. With aspiration, so aspiration of that amniotic fluid, aspiration of that amniotic fluid with meconium in it, causes fluid to accumulate in the lungs, which impairs oxygenation and results in neonatal hypoxia. There's also a lot of other things associated with meconium aspiration syndrome and complications. So we're going to dive into that in this episode. So what is the pathophysiology of meconium aspiration syndrome? So as that infant inhales or gasps, which is what typically may occur when the, when the 
patient, the infant, is in distress, they gasp. The meconium slash amniotic fluid, so that mixture of meconium and amniotic fluid, enters the airway, causing airway obstruction, disruption of surfactant, pulmonary hypertension, and aspiration pneumonitis. Now, you may also see aspiration pneumonitis as chemical pneumonitis. So just know that you may see it one way or the other. So let's talk about each of these a bit in turn. Airway obstruction, okay? That's probably the most obvious one that comes to mind. So that sticky substance of that meconium can completely occlude the airways, leading to atelectasis. Now, partial obstruction is going to lead to that infant not being able to fully exhale. This causes the alveoli to become distended and leads to air trapping. So that's with partial obstruction. When we have this air trapping, we have hyperinflation of the lungs leading to air that can enter the pericardium, the mediastinum, and the pleura, which would be a pneumothorax. And then I also mentioned surfactant disruption. So recall that surfactant is a detergent-like mixture of fats and proteins that decreases alveolar surface tension. And what that does is it prevents the alveoli from collapsing, okay? So without adequate surfactant, alveoli collapse every time the infant exhales. That decreases the amount of surface area available for gas exchange. The overall result is atelectasis. And if you're interested in learning more about atelectasis, I want you to head on over to episode 64. Now, you might be thinking, well, why can't the infant just breathe in again and open the alveoli and have more area for gas exchange? In infants and neonates, they're just not able to get enough inspiratory force, get enough pressure buildup to open those collapsed alveoli. So if you want to learn more about atelectasis, again, go to that episode, which was episode 64. With atelectasis, very important to know that the hypoxemia can be really, really significant. I also mentioned pulmonary hypertension. So there is a condition called persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn, PPHN. And when I reached out to my sister-in-law, who is a NICU educator, the PPHN was what she mentioned as probably one of the most troublesome things that they treat for these little patients. So as a result of respiratory distress, the pulmonary vasculature constricts. And this increases pulmonary resistance, which decreases lung tissue perfusion and pulmonary blood flow. The increased pulmonary pressure can even cause the infant's circulation to revert partially to fetal circulation, where blood shunts from the right to the left 
through the ductus arteriosus and foramen ovale. As this process continues, the infant goes into an acidotic state. And then we have aspiration or chemical pneumonitis. So bile salts, intestinal epithelial cells, and other material of the meconium are very irritating and cause inflammation of the delicate pulmonary tissues. At its most severe, aspiration or chemical pneumonitis can lead to acute respiratory distress syndrome. If you would like to dive into ARDS in more detail, I invite you to listen to episode 137, and I will link to that in the episode notes also. So now that you have a bit of an overview of the pathophysiology of meconium aspiration syndrome, let's talk a little bit about who is most at risk. So babies most at risk for MAS are those born post-term due to long and complicated deliveries that often occur with post-term babies. Additionally, post-term infants are more likely to have a bowel movement in utero due to basically a more, um, more cholinergic innervation and higher levels of hormones that regulate gastric motility. Other factors that contribute to the presence of meconium in the womb are Again, that long labor or delivery, prolonged rupture of membranes, preeclampsia, oligohydramnios, placental insufficiency, fetal hypoxia, so a baby getting in distress, any kind of fetal stress actually, umbilical cord compression, which would put the baby into distress, intrauterine growth restriction, maternal infection, chorioamnionitis, maternal diabetes, maternal nicotine use, and maternal drug abuse. Additionally, the use of some intrapartum medications can predispose the passage of meconium, including oxytocin and misoprostol. So a lot of different things that put baby at risk for MAS. Now, when meconium is present in the amniotic fluid, its consistency is a really important factor in the severity of the condition. The studies show that when the meconium is thicker and basically stickier, infants have a five to seven times increase in risk of perinatal death. So how common is meconium aspiration syndrome? The presence of meconium in the amniotic fluid occurs in about 8 to 25% of all births after the 34th week of gestation. So not terribly uncommon to have meconium in the fluid. Of those, though, only about 10% develop MAS, with the incidence decreasing in correlation with advances in obstetrics and neonatal care. So that's good. Racial disparities do exist when it comes to meconium aspiration syndrome, with an 80% higher risk of meconium-stained amniotic fluid amongst non-Hispanic Blacks versus non-Hispanic Whites. So what are the long-term implications of meconium aspiration syndrome? Though most neonates have full recovery from MAS, they are likely to be more prone to respiratory infection in that first year of life. Now, those with more severe disease are, again, going to be at higher risk, and these, these babies are going to be at higher risk for developing reactive airway disease, as well as other complications such as 
bronchopulmonary dysplasia, pulmonary hypertension, and even pneumothorax. And then we look at what about those low oxygen levels? What are the long-term effects of that? Well, significantly low oxygen levels can cause some very devastating neurological deficits. This could be cerebral palsy, developmental delays, and even seizure. So now you've got kind of a good background in MAS. Let's learn how to manage these patients for your nursing school exams, your case studies, your sim lab, all of that stuff. And to do that, we're going to be going through the straight A nursing latte method. So we start with the letter L. How does the patient look? What are the signs and symptoms, basically, of meconium aspiration syndrome? So when the aspiration occurs, that infant will display signs of respiratory distress, unless they were already in respiratory distress, and then those signs are continuing, right? And signs of respiratory distress include gasping, nasal flaring, accessory muscle use, bradycardia, cyanosis, limpness, and yellow or green stained skin. Now, their APGAR score is going to be low based on these findings. If you want to learn more about APGAR scoring or need a review on that, it is in episode 158. Other signs and symptoms of meconium aspiration syndrome include a flat fetal strip, or one with many late D-cells indicating significant fetal distress. The mother may state that they notice decreased fetal movement. The baby would have low oxygen saturation levels. The baby would also have elevated carbon dioxide levels, which is hypercapnia, and acidotic cord blood gases. Baby may have hypotension. You could hear crackles upon auscultation. Barrel chest is present because of that air trapping. It would look like hyperinflation on an x-ray. That x-ray could also show streaky or patchy areas that you could hear described as salt and pepper, and this indicates pneumonitis. You would see or someone looking below the vocal cords could see presence of meconium. And then we have acid-base imbalances. So respiratory alkalosis can occur due to tachypnea and hyperventilation, which then transitions to respiratory acidosis as the infant tires. And then respiratory acidosis is also related to air trapping, which causes an accumulation of carbon dioxide. And then we get into the next letter of the latte method, which is assess. How do you assess the patient? So one of the key assessments you will conduct on any newborn is, of course, their APGAR score. So again, if you are unfamiliar or need a refresher on APGAR scoring, I want you to check out episode 158 and pay very close attention to the infant's cardiovascular status, respiratory status, and their skin color. So cardiovascular status. The infant may be tachycardic in an attempt to compensate but will most likely be bradycardic due to that hypoxia. As for the respiratory status, 
Auscultation will likely reveal crackles or rails due to that accumulation of fluid in the lungs. And crackles could be also related to that atelectasis, those collapsed alveoli when they try to open. Again, though, the baby may not be able to open those collapsed alveoli. The child will most likely be in obvious respiratory distress. Skin color, the meconium-stained amniotic fluid can color the umbilical cord and possibly also the skin a yellow or greenish color. Higher levels of meconium in the amniotic fluid tend to create more significant stains, and then cyanosis may also be present. Now, I do want you to note that there's different ways to assess for cyanosis in darker-skinned infants. So, That APGAR episode talks about that. So again, go check out episode 158. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations, and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. Now looking at the latte method, the next letter is a T and that stands for tests. What tests are typically conducted for a little baby who has suspected or confirmed meconium aspiration syndrome? So common tests would be a chest x-ray and or a chest CT. Cord blood gases would be done initially when the baby's cord is present, getting a blood gas off the cord and then ABG analysis afterwards. The physician may order an ultrasound of the lungs for early diagnosis, while a laryngoscopy could identify meconium in and below the vocal cords. Another test that will likely be done is blood cultures. A lot of times there may be some question about is this meconium aspiration syndrome or is this an infection? And occasionally there can be both. So a Blood culture could be done and CBC could be done to assess for infection. And then looking at the next letter, T, what treatments will be provided? So for a neonate in respiratory distress, the recommendation is to initiate neonatal resuscitation procedures with positive pressure ventilation utilized very quickly, ideally in the first minute after delivery. Now, if that positive pressure ventilation does not produce the desired result, like there's no chest rise and oxygen saturation levels are not improving, that is likely that there is an obstruction occurring. So that baby may need to have tracheal suctioning. And back in the old days, every baby got suctioned basically as soon as the head exited the birth canal. Note that nowadays, routine oropharyngeal and nasopharyngeal suctioning is not the norm. Studies are showing that it could potentially cause more harm than benefit. So if suctioning is being used, it will most likely be beneath or below the glottis in infants with very poor APGAR score. So this baby is going to be very sick and could possibly very likely end up getting intubated and placed on a ventilator. 
Another treatment is surfactant lavage therapy. I found this very interesting. This may be utilized for infants with severe respiratory distress. And this procedure involves introducing basically exogenous surfactant into the lungs. And studies show that it can result in some pretty impressively rapid improvements and a reduced need for mechanical ventilation and decreased duration of oxygen therapy. Inhaled nitric oxide allows the blood vessels to dilate. So what do you think is going to happen to that pulmonary vascular resistance? If the blood vessels dilate in the pulmonary vasculature, pulmonary vascular resistance will decrease, and this will lead to improved oxygenation. And then we have extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or otherwise known as ECMO. Now, ECMO may be used for very sick infants in severe respiratory failure or who have very significant pulmonary hypertension. In ECMO, cannulas are placed, which draw blood from the infant, send it to a machine for gas exchange, and then return it to the child fully oxygenated and with the carbon dioxide removed. So this is a intense therapy, but it can improve patient outcomes significantly. Oxygen therapy will depend on the severity of the respiratory dysfunction and can range from simple hood oxygen to a nasal cannula to CPAP to mechanical ventilation. Now, for very, very ill neonates, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, HFOV, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, may be necessary. For more discussion about ventilators, I want you to check out episode 83. I go into the basics of ventilators and ventilator settings so that you can go into clinical feeling a bit more confident. So that was episode 83. Another treatment that may be utilized is chest physiotherapy and postural drainage. These have shown to have a significant favorable impact in improving lung function in infants with meconium aspiration syndrome. Earlier when we talked about the tests and I mentioned that blood cultures may be done, antibiotics could be another treatment that you see and they will be necessary if the patient develops an infection. But note they're not routinely used in that treatment of MAS specifically. However, what you might see and what might be pretty common is the infant first prescribed a broad-spectrum antibiotic while the blood culture results are pending because, again, MAS can mimic other conditions such as sepsis and bacterial pneumonia. So antibiotics not necessarily routinely used but may be used empirically while we wait for blood cultures to result, especially if babies at high risk for infection. And then therapeutic hypothermia. This treatment is utilized for infants who develop hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. You may see this as HIE, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. In infants that meet specific criteria, cooling measures are used to get that body temperature down to 91 degrees Fahrenheit for a period of 72 hours. And this gives the brain 
time to heal. It basically slows it down and gives it some time to heal. So that was a lot of treatments. I'm just going to mention them from top to bottom just to refresh your memory. So initially, those neonatal resuscitation procedures with positive pressure ventilation, the baby may need their trachea cleared. Surfactant lavage therapy could be utilized and then inhaled nitric oxide or nitric oxide, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, um, is that one that's going to get the blood vessels to dilate. And then we have ECMO for those very sick little babies. Oxygen therapy that can be just hood oxygen ranging all the way up to mechanical ventilation or even high frequency oscillatory ventilation. Chest physiotherapy, postural drainage, and antibiotics if there's infection or risk for infection, and then therapeutic hypothermia. The last letter in the LATTE method is an E, and that stands for educate. How do we educate this little one's family or caregivers? So having a child in the NICU is really stressful for the caregivers, the parents, the family members, siblings, everybody. Teaching should focus on the specific interventions being done for the child because as you can see, a lot of things could be going wrong with this little one. So guiding your education towards those Specific interventions is really key and including the family in as much of the infant's care as possible. You also want to teach the parents that the child could have some long-term effects such as chronic lung disease or even developmental delays if hypoxia was present. Teaching will be again catered to the specific concerns for each child. In addition, teach the parents of the risk factors for MAS, especially if they're planning to have more children. Some factors such as gestational diabetes and maternal hypertension could potentially be controlled with adequate medical care. If the mother has limited access to medical care, provide information on community resources or coordinate with the hospital social worker. I know the hospital where I work Every family that has a NICU baby has a social worker, so they can help navigate the healthcare needs of this child, which is a really, really great benefit. Whether meconium is sterile or not is an ongoing debate, and the family may ask why the child is not receiving antibiotics. So you want to teach the family that, again, antibiotics are typically only used if the infant develops an infection. However, the baby may get those empiric antibiotics, that broad-spectrum antibiotic just in case, and that would be started if the infant is at high risk for infections such as prolonged rupture of membranes or mom maybe has an infection and then discontinued if that blood culture turns out to be negative. Now, prior to discharge, you want to teach the caregivers the signs of respiratory distress, such as lethargy, poor eating, cyanosis, nasal flaring, intercostal muscle use, supraclavicular retractions, all those things that indicate the baby is struggling to breathe. 
So I hope this overview of meconium aspiration syndrome was helpful for you in preparing for your exams, preparing for, I hope you get to go to a clinical rotation in the NICU. It's a really cool place to be. And of course, um, case studies, sim lab, all of that. So if you'd like to learn more about pediatrics, I'll put a link in the episode notes that will take you to all of the pediatric episodes. And I've also listed all the specific ones that I talked about throughout this episode. So next week, I will be seeing you same time, same place. And we're going to be talking about some key ways to stand out as a brand new graduate who is going out there and landing your dream job. So I will see you back here next week. And again, if you subscribe to the podcast, the episode will land automatically in your podcast player every Thursday morning, bright and early. So take a moment to do that. And I will see you next week. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.